0: Well, hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection Say Church. Uh, My name is Joel, I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and uh, I just want to thank you for being with us this morning as we gather to, to worship God, as we gather to, to fellowship with one another, as we gather to do all the things we do. Take communion, uh, study God's word, um, all of it. It's just a joy to me that, um, that we can gather every Sunday and do this. So thank you for being here this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll hop into uh, our message today. We're starting a brand new series this week. I'm very excited for it. Lord, thank you for being with us this morning. We just finished up this series about your Holy Spirit. Uh, and what it looks like for us to walk by the power of your Spirit, God. I pray that your Spirit would be with us today as we dive into um, dive into a big topic. I um, just pray that you'd be with us. Help us to to, to seek it out well, to be humble, um, to be open and vulnerable as we do. Um, and, and also, Lord, that your love would shine through very greatly to us as well. This week and every week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when I was a kid, every Monday night, I would try to watch... Uh, this thing, uh, it was a segment on Jay, the Jay Leno show. Do you guys know who Jay Leno is? Okay. I feel like at this point, like, that's a pretty long time ago now that he was on. But he was like a late-night talk show host. If you don't know who he was, he was like Jimmy, like Jimmy Fallon, okay, before Jimmy Fallon. Um, and he did this segment on Mondays called Headlines. And I loved it as a kid. I thought it was super funny. I don't know if any of you, okay, a few people know this one. Okay, good. Um, I would, I would uh, love to watch here. And what they would do is they'd collect like funny headlines or news clippings from around the country, and they would kind of just show them and laugh about them. And sometimes it'd be typos that were just, you know, totally changed what you were reading. Sometimes it would be just really weird stories, and sometimes like some classifieds that just blow your mind kind of. So anyway, this week I I just went back and watched a few, and I I picked out a few that I thought were really funny to share with you. Okay, so here's the first one. Um, The clicker's not working. Do you guys want to see if we can get that up? Okay, cool. So first one here, uh, something to scare you when you go to the doctor. Brazilian with an earache gets vasectomy by mistake. Yeah. Maybe ask, make sure you know what you're getting when you go to the doctor. Okay, next here. This one's about government futility. Officials investigating officials investigating other officials. (laughs) And you wonder why nothing gets done sometimes. All right, here's an example of some really good police work. St. Paul police to again donate confiscated booze to the elderly. (laughs) At least They're doing something with it instead of drinking it themselves, I guess. Okay, Uh, I got a couple of really funny classifieds here. Again, I always thought the classifieds were some of the best. First one, free indoor duck. Comes with diapers and carrier, six weeks old. Okay, that one's pretty cute. This next one, maybe not so much, all right? And I feel like this next one... It feels like it has to be a joke, all right? Free to good home or not so good home. Spider monkey with an attitude. Alfred plays guitar, mostly at night, and throws knives out of meanness. I've been stabbed three times. I've had enough. (laughs) Just insane, insane stuff. Now, I don't know what words you would use to describe some of these headlines. Maybe you'd say funny, ridiculous, dumb, unbelievable, weird, right? Those are some words that would come to your mind as you were thinking about how to categorize these. Um, Let me get more serious here, though, okay? I'm going to kill the vibe a little bit. Um, What would you use to describe this headline? Tragedy upon tragedy, 44 hours, three mass shootings, 19 dead. This is from a CNN article in January, and maybe you kind of heard about this in the news. It refers to like a a stretch of shootings that all happened in California around that period of time. I don't know what word we use to describe stuff like this. The headline uses the word tragedy, um, and that gets at it, I think, but it really doesn't ring true, I feel like, in some ways, to maybe the anger we feel about it, right? I feel like the word tragedy signals something that's abnormal, right? We use the word tragedy to describe like when a 20-year-old kid has a you know a heart condition that kills them, right? That's abnormal. That's not supposed to happen, and that's a tragedy, right? But I think what what makes this so awful is it's not abnormal. Like the whole point is that it's tragedy upon tragedy, right? It's stuff that's getting stacked on top of one another. And so what do you call a tragedy that keeps stacking up on top of it in a never-ending train, right? I know this is very relevant. This is stuff we're you know, maybe we have fear about as we think about going to, to schools or different things, right? And, and the depth of this, I feel like, is so awful that we need language to, dis- to describe stuff like this, right? A word that can kind of capture the depth of the awfulness of it. Now, the Christian tradition, the one, you know, that we're standing in here at Res City, has a word that has been used for centuries. It's even older than the church itself, to describe awful events like this and what leads to them and the cycle that gets created by it. And that word is sin. And so what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks is we're starting a series where I want to really have us unpack this concept of sin. Uh, It fits with Lent, right? This is the season of the church where we meditate on the sin and brokenness of the world as we approach Good Friday and Easter, believing that what happens, that we celebrate in Good Friday and Easter, speaks to the depth of stuff, you know, what we just talked about. It speaks directly to it. It's God's answer to it, right? But I also know that first, when we talk about sin, it's a thorny word for people to use. And so what I want us to do is to recapture that word in a lot of ways for ourselves, to kind of take it back and use it in the way that Scripture uses it. I think God intends for us to use this word because I think when we do, we better understand ourselves. I think we better understand the gospel, our world. And I think in doing so, and maybe surprisingly so, I think we find a lot of hope and liberation and peace and forgiveness and love. Okay? But we can't do that if we're not willing to approach this word or this subject. And so we're going to really do that in some depth here uh, throughout this series. And we're going to be doing a lot of stuff. I really want to approach this from a lot of different angles. We're going to talk about uh, kind of sin from the beginning. We'll do that next week. Uh, we'll talk about sin's connection to creation, uh, sin as almost like a character at times in scripture, and then sin's henchmen. We'll talk about Satan and demons. Right? So we're going to really get into the kind of nooks and crannies of all this stuff. Okay, but I, I, I want to set this up today, because I know sin gets talked about a lot in the church, right? It's a word we you maybe have heard a lot of times, depending on how much time you've spent in churches in your life, but I think the hard part is it's kind of one of those very Christian-y words that we gets used a lot, but it's not always explained very well, right? And I think that it creates this disconnect sometimes between what I think is a really robust, you know, way to understand the world and a lot of cringe that we might experience because of it, right? When people, I think, especially outside the church, but often inside of it too, when they think of sin, I think a lot of times their mind starts to wander to witch hunts and religious persecutions, you know, uh, of Puritans, like scouring a village, looking for some impure soul to burn at a stake, right? And admit it, when you see someone with a sign like from a group of people that are, you know, at like a at like a gay pride event or something, they're protesting it, and the sign says, you know, everyone there is sinners, they're hated by God, you recoil from that a little bit. I think you should recoil from that, right? That is, that 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 I think is something we, we should understand, like this is not, I, I think, okay to kind of use this word in the way that it often gets used a lot of times, Um and it contributes to, I think, this this disconnect I'm talking about. I was at a conference recently, and there, there was a speaker there. And, and they mentioned that this person mentioned his brother is like a theology professor. And he asked his students um, what sin was. And one of them said this. Sin is putting shame on someone else for being themselves, Giving you the excuse to judge other people. I think that's pretty lame, you know. And if I... You know, if that's what sin was, then I would say, yeah, this is probably not a helpful idea for us to really engage with. Because that, I think, is what a lot of people think of sin, I think there's a tendency to get away from using the language of sin altogether, even among some Christians. But I think what we're actually trying to distance ourselves, what we're actually discomforted by, is not sin itself, but sort of the cringe word, the images that I just talked about. But I don't think That sin is this, okay? I think sin is much more than how it gets talked about, right? And I think it actually deeply and compellingly explains the human condition. I think this is incredibly relevant for us. To understand in depth what does the Bible mean when it talks about sin? What is it that God has come to rescue us from when we discuss sin? And so today I want to really intro this. I want to kind of get us on uh, the right path as we start to really go and analyze in-depth what sin is. And I want us to really think about why it matters for us that we do understand sin, that we do think about it, that we do ask ourselves, where where am I filled with sin? How am I contributing to sin? in the world, okay? So let's do this today. Let's start with a simple, kind of very high-level definition of sin, but one I think is a good conversation starter, which we'll kind of narrow as we, you know, go throughout the series today and then start to nuance even more throughout the series itself. So let's start here. What is sin? Okay, that's the question we're asking. I think at a very high level, sin is Scripture's way of saying that something isn't in line with God's design for the world, including us. At a very high level, I think this is what sin is. Now, when you put it this way, I think a lot of people could agree with this, right? There is something wrong in the world. I think we, we feel that. And even if, you know, you, know you, don't, you don't maybe say that necessarily, we all act like that's true, right? We all really, I think, believe that there is something wrong with the world. Something is not right? Right, But the problem is everybody has a different answer as to what that problem in the world might be. Right? So various things that you might hear people talk about as kind of the real problem in the world today. Here's just a list of things that I, I hear from time to time. Uh, sexism or racism or homophobia or socialism or Marxism or chauvinism or feminism or corruption among leaders or the media itself, uh, a lack of education, in the world, resistance to science. Maybe it's big government, or maybe it's small government. Maybe it's the Republican Party. Maybe it's the Democratic Party. Right? Maybe it's, it's the trauma. It's trauma that people experience. Right? Or maybe it's just any kind of rule or stigma that gets placed on anyone that limits their freedom and self-expression. Right? Some people would even say the problem in the world today is religion itself. Right? There's all kinds of things that you will hear people talk about as describing what's wrong with the world today. I think the issue is that while all of these things we could maybe focus on and we could say, yeah, there is some problem here. There's something wrong with this thing that needs to be corrected. And it contributes some damage to the world in some way. Right? And we could do some work to try to minimize the damage of one of those things. Right? At the end of the day, what we're really doing, when we really think about it, is we're scooping water in a bucket out of a flood, right? We are not going to the root of what the real problems are, right? We need some bigger idea of what's actually wrong, and I think this is where the language of sin is very helpful, because sin accounts not, or sin accounts not just uh, for the wide range of issues in the world, but also the interconnectivity between them. And how they kind of stack up on each other and combine to create truly unholy stuff. All right, so let's narrow the definition a little bit more. What is sin? Sin is language that God gives us for the complex web of damage and evil that is done to humans and to our world. All right, in the Bible, sin is very multifaceted, it shows up everywhere, it shows up in everyone, and it infects everything. Right? We live in a world where, where things are interconnected to each other in all kinds of ways, right? And we, re- we really think about it, everything is kind of spun off of something else, right? Someone else's bad day at work becomes your bad day at home later. Your anxiety about how you'll pay for an unforeseen medical bill leads to your embarrassment later on because you find that you treat the barista rudely in your stress. A piece of code that someone writes in Silicon Valley for a social media app creates depression and suicidal tendencies in a teenager in New Hampshire. A traumatic event from someone's teenage years affects a friend they meet 20 years later. Right? Everything is, is connected, and sin is a slow-moving chain reaction through everything. Right, let me give you an example, I think something that we could conceive of happening. This isn't based on a real thing, but I'm sure you know, we could find examples of stuff very similar to this if we looked. All right? Let's say there's a young man, and he has a father who is the, the grand dragon. He kind of leads the, the K, local KKK chapter. The father, obviously, is a man who's very openly racist, and he is an unloving and hard man who abuses and beats his son for being too soft creating all sorts of anxiety and trauma in this boy. Now, as this guy grows to become a young man, in an effort to, to join his father, or sorry, to impress his father, he joins the KKK himself. And he, in or, in or, to f- go further, to try to impress his father, to earn his approval, he, uh, he uh, c- commits a racially motivated act of terror on a black neighbor of his, injuring the black man. And the white man gets, he gets brought to trial, and against the fact of the case, he's acquitted by an all-white jury operating out of racial bias. Okay? And let's just say, in a moment of understandable rage and helplessness and vengeance to the injustice of the trial, the black man one night feels, he feels so low, he has no other option but to attack this white man himself and try to get justice on his own. And he kills the guy. When we think about everything that's happened in this chain of events, spanning years even, we see that sin has woven its way through all the links of the chain of that story. Okay, you have the abuse and the beating by the father to the boy, leading to this trauma and anxiety, this sort of misplaced sense, I need to gain this terrible man's approval. And while trauma is absolutely not a sin, okay, I want to be clear on that, what he did out of his trauma to harm his black neighbor that certainly was. And the vengeance taken by the black man that's also sin. So we see the sin done to this poor guy became his own sin now. Right? But then you have the other stuff that is harder to define and nail down and quantify. The racism itself that spurred it on. Right? The injustice of this trial because of the bias of the jury that's sin working silently in the background of all of it to propagate this sin of racism over and over. Racism is part of this young white man. It's something that leads to his sinful acts, but it also came to him from his father. And the conditions that this man grew up in all around him shaped his view of the world around him, woven throughout culture and people for generations. This is not something new that had touched this young man. It is something much older than him. And so in a sense, you can't entirely blame this man for it because it's the environment he grew up in. There's so much here that could be called sin, and I think this is why sin is such a big deal, because it's woven into the fabric of this whole situation. It's not just a random broken law. It's a complex web of damage and destruction that we all get sucked into, harmed by, and contribute to. And I think it's this complex web which draws all of us into its net that I think Scripture has in mind when it says things like this. Okay, here's some verses talking about, about the pervasiveness of sin in the world. I've got five of them. Okay, first of all, John eight thirty four. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Romans 3, 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Romans three twenty three. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Ephesians two one. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins. And first John one eight. If we claim that we're free of sin, we're only fooling ourselves. Now, what does all this mean? This is not a means of heaping shame on people needlessly by the Bible. That's not the goal of the writers of these passages of Scripture. Instead, it's their attempt to communicate the world as it is. Okay, and so when we take all this together, here's what I think Scripture is saying about all of our relationship to sin. I think we can put it in three ways. Okay, first of all, we are enslaved by sin. Second, we all perpetuate sin. And then third, we are all victims of sin. Now, we're going we're gonna to unpack all of these, explore all these throughout the series. That's kind of the goal. Again, I want to come at this from a lot of angles, right? I want us to think about how sin is not just something we do. It is something bigger than that. It is something that we do, yes, but it is also much bigger than that. It's not something that we can escape, right? We can't cancel it. We can't divide the world up neatly into sinners and saints based on our own criteria's of righteousness, and we can't logic our way through it with better education or with grit or with just some good plan to manage it. We can't do those things. We can try to do those things. We can maybe minimize it in some ways, but we can't stop it because sin is a meat grinder that devastates us all over and over, forming us all into its own ugly image, wrecking all of creation, and it has been doing so for about as long as humankind has existed the centuries of that that have been caked up on us all is a backbreaking load for humanity to carry now i think it can be scary to admit what scripture claims that we are all people under this terrible power people who have been taken over by it and inflict sin on ourselves and others i think it plays in a lot of ways to our deepest fears right that we're not as free as we like to tell ourselves that, we're, that we might feel like we're admitting insufficiency in some way. That our actions actually have consequences that we don't always realize. We might have a fear of being canceled, of being seen as impure. It's us admitting that we're not always or ever really the world changers and heroes that we often imagine ourselves to be. And it might give us some anxiety. It might cause us to lose some self-esteem sometimes. Okay, I get that. But I want to actually turn all of that on its head, okay? And that's what I want to do for the rest uh, of the sermon here today because it can feel like a burden, I think, to admit that we are enslaved by, that we're perpetuating and we're victims of sin. But actually, I think it's in, it can be incredibly liberating for us to admit all this. And I want to explain why. And so that's where we're going to spend the rest of the time in the sermon today, all right? So what is sin? Again, another definition. Sin is a reason to give each other grace and to accept it from God. Okay, if this is where we, we come to, okay, this is true for us. Right? There is a temptation, I think, to treat sin as this, this old idea, right? Th- to say people are mostly good, and we always, therefore, should operate at our peak potential. We're all we should always be the best version of ourselves because of that. That any dream that you have is always going to be accomplished as long as you just harness positivity and believe in yourself, right? That seems like it can be very freeing, and I understand it, right, as a reaction against the sort of shame-based sin-mongering that I talked about a little bit earlier, okay? And it seems real good when things are going good. It seems fine as a fine way to think about things, okay, but usually you're not <laughs> operating at your peak, right? Things are usually not going great, and sometimes they're, they're completely going to hell, right? And this doesn't explain that very well, I don't think. And actually, it leads to a. It becomes a kind of basis, I think, for a sort of graceless view of yourself in the world when you adopt that posture. So let me explain all this, okay? I really want to explain why. I mean, what I mean when I say all this. All right, we define ourselves by our strengths and our skills. Our strengths and our skills, right? We try to learn those things and, and try to figure out what we're like in the ideal situation when we're at our best. Okay, and so when we think of who we are, we're thinking of ourselves and we describe ourselves in that way to others, right? That's where we often start. But the problem is we're often not at our best, right? We're often operating not at our peak, okay? In fact, I would say a lot of times very rarely are we operating in that way, right? And so why can't we be okay describing ourselves in that way too, right? Maybe, you know, we could say like, hey, sometimes I'm really good with kids and I'm a great teacher, Except when I'm in a bad mood, because then I start to kind of cut corners, I'm short with the kids, and I actively dream about how much pleasure I would get out of failing them all, but I don't because I know I'd have to deal with them next year, (laughs) right? And I kind of hate my job and myself in those moments, and if I'm really honest, that actually happens a lot of times right around 2 p.m. every day, okay? That's actually who I am a lot of the time. Because we've told ourselves that who we are is only the best version of ourselves, the, the one we put on social media and resumes, we have to think of ourselves all the time as not being touched by sin. But that's not true of our day-to-day lives, right? We might spend a lot of time thinking we're that 8 a.m. version of ourselves. And that the 2 p.m. version of us, that's kind of just a fluke. Right? But if we're honest, we're just as often that 2 p.m. version of us as we are the 8 a.m. version of us, where we're firing on all cylinders, we're ready to do good, and we're ready to save the world. Okay? Both of those things are true of us, right? even in the same day a lot of times. And it's okay to admit that. Right? We don't have to fear admitting that. All right? This realization, I think, is also very liberating for our interactions with other people, too. Right, an author named Dave Zoll, he explains how we often view people who let us down or do wrong to us in some way. He's, you know, he's talking about someone here who has like a low view of hum- human sinfulness. Th- he says, they tend to distance themselves from a wrongdoer. And they insist that the guilty party is a fundamentally different type of person than they are. They're an incel, a bigot, a small-minded, privileged rageaholic. They sort people into categories. The sick versus the healthy. The sane versus the crazed. The caring versus the callous. The privileged versus the oppressed. The good versus the bad. This allows us to judge and move on, case closed. Okay, when we expect to be known at our best, we start to expect that of everyone around us too. And when we do, we will have no ability to cope with being let down except by doing what Dave Zoll says, right? That's how we respond when we expect ourselves to be the best all the time, and we expect it of everyone around us. But the truth is, and we have all experienced this, we experience it constantly, you will be let down by people. In fact, you are let down by them all the time. And you will have a much easier time in life if you can accept the idea of sin and its universal effects on us and everyone around you. At night, every, every night, I try to pray, uh, pray a prayer of confession before I go to bed. I try to like, kind of reflect back on, on sin that I've committed during the day um, and, and really pray, ask, you, know, you know, confessing that to God, asking for forgiveness, right? I can't tell you how much confessing my own sin actually relieves my anxiety, my anger, and my frustration with other people. Okay, when I acknowledge I've screwed up or I messed up that I've let other people down, where I think about how that you know 2 p.m. version of me has come out in some way during the day, it reminds me that I shouldn't feel caught off guard that I'm feeling let down by someone else, and I'm feeling frustration or stress because of it that I've carried I've carried with me throughout the day and that night I'm thinking about it even as I'm praying to God. Okay, I'm not say, I'm not saying we should give people a free pass that we should ju- you know just pretend that it doesn't matter, right? If someone's hurt us, that, that, that doesn't matter. I'm not saying that, okay? But if we can't accept that people will let us down, then we will just be bitter and angry with everyone around us or a.k.a. how everyone is all the time nowadays, right? Burned out from hating each other because we have no grace to give anyone. Instead of making us hate everyone, admitting that we're full of sin and that sin is something that is around us all frees us from hating anyone. And we will crumble under the burden of the perfection that we put on ourselves to trying to live up to these standards because even if we hit the mark that we're trying to hit sometimes, we will burn ourselves out and sap our joy by doing it, even in areas where we might not expect Okay? When we tell ourselves, you know, we are the best and we are free and we have the potential to do anything that we want, it has a way of kind of putting a pressure on us that when we miss it, actually leads us to a lot of despair. Uh, let me give you an example of this. Okay? Writer Ada Calhoun in 2020, she noticed that many uh, women like her that she talked to were incredibly unhappy. And she tried to figure out why this was the case. Okay? So I'm quoting again from that author, David Zoll, and it's a book called Low Anthropology. All right, so she, um, she was like, why wouldn't women be happier? We, it's a very good time to be a woman, right? Things are changing in the world for women. There's a lot more opportunities afforded them. There's a lot more intentionality among people to try to create equality for women. Why aren't, why aren't we finding that they're happier? Here's what she found. She found that a great number of women that she interviewed were struggling with an unspoken imperative to shine in every area of life. Okay, in the past, the question for women was maybe just, how nice is your home? Or maybe how good are you at your job? You know, and that's it. But now, it's all the things. Are you a good parent? Are you good at work? Is your house nice? Are you in good shape? Are you recycling? It's every single factor of your life that, people, that women feel like they have to excel in. Okay, the idea that women could do anything somehow morphed into a directive that they must do everything, and do it all effortlessly, okay? And there's a version of that for men too, okay? I'm not saying this is just something that's, that's true of women, right? The point is that trying to be perfect because we feel like we can and we should, all the time, it's exhausting, and it will drain us of life. I think further than this, a belief in our sinfulness frees us from believing that all of our desires are good and have to be chaste. They must be maximized. Okay? Think about it. We're constantly told that anything that bubbles up out of us is good, and we can and we should follow our desires if we want to be truly happy, Right? Whatever that is, you know, having sex with anyone we want, eating, drinking, smoking, whatever we want, buying whatever we want, expressing ourselves and our identity in any way that we want. That's what we're supposed to do because anything that comes out of us, it's good. You're supposed to follow it if you want to be happy. Think about how exhausting it is to keep up with all of that and how, especially consider how conflicting our desires often are, right? I've bought all kinds of things. That within a few days, I was like, that was a really bad idea. And I really wanted that thing. I legitimately, genuinely wanted it when I clicked buy. And now I'm like, that was a stupid idea, Joel. Actually, Julie has started to make me, like whenever I want to buy a piece of clothing, she asks me like 10 times, do you really want this? Are you going to want this in a week? Because she knows that oftentimes, like I change my mind. My desires are conflicting within me, right? It is not always a good thing that comes out of me. Our desires change on a whim, and they are in no way infallible, and in fact, we often regret them. It's exhausting to keep up with them because we think it might lead us to true happiness to follow them wherever they lead. It's exhausting to deal with the ramifications of diving in headfirst to our desires, and often the hurt of ourselves and others that can come with them. And I think it's also exhausting to have to defend everything we do. Right To never apologize, even though we do know deep down we did something wrong. Instead, admitting that we're touched by sin frees us to do the very, I think, healthy practice of questioning our desires, of limiting them sometimes, and sacrificing them even to God. Think about how much it would change the world if everyone quit trying to attain to perfection and quit being so upset when perfection isn't what they got from people around them. What a breath of fresh air that would be for us all, right? Think about how much more empathy and compassion and love it would give you towards people who drive you nuts. People that you're told to hate and fear and and cut out of your life sometimes because they're just a drag on you in some way. How much less anger and anxiety we would have when people let us down. And how much less sensitive we could be with ourselves, with our failures and limitations even that we find coming out of us in all sorts of different ways, right? It would be a reminder to us that, like, we can accept grace. We don't have to put our worth into what we produce or how valuable we are to the company we work for or how good we have been doing at all the things. We would quit needing to live up to that. It would make us humble and not judgmental. We would ask questions. We would not be afraid to make mistakes or screw up. We could laugh at our mistakes even, right? We could have compassion for others. We'd find forgiveness rather than cancellation, and we could believe that when we make mistakes instead of being so terrified at what might happen to us because we've messed up in some way. And instead of hating ourselves and others, we would be free instead to hate the sin and corruption that plagues us all, to grieve it, to lament it, and to cry out to God, to free us all from it. This isn't just some way to let others or yourself off the hook, okay? Let me be clear. To sweep it all under the rug like it doesn't matter, right? Acknowledging the the sin that is in the world around us and that touches us, that's not the end of the process. It's actually the beginning. It allows us to do something with our sin and with the sin around us that tries to do something about it, that accepts what God has done about it. All right? And it opens us up to God's love all right, so this is the last thing that we find when we talk about what is sin. It's actually, in a lot of ways, it's a highlighter that emphasizes God's love for us. OK? God's love that's an easy concept to get on board with, but I wonder how much sometimes we really get it. Uh, God doesn't love you just because you're so darn lovable, OK? You are all really great, okay? Don't, you know, don't let me take that away from you, but that's not what it means when we talk about God's love for us. He doesn't love you because you're always the 8 a.m. version of yourself. His love is actually most clearly shown to you when you're the 2 p.m. version of yourself. His love draws us closer to him, and that includes all the parts of us, even the parts we're afraid to admit are there, right? If you're ever close enough to someone, they'll sin against you, Right? Even in some ways that will surprise you. Right? God's love draws us closer to him, but he's not afraid of that. Right? I remember I went to a church back in college and they would kind of talk about their vision for community. And they said, this is how, we, how tight we want our community as a church to be. We want to be so close that we sin against each other. And it was kind of interesting to think about. Like, yeah, you, you have to be, like, a lot of times you can keep people arm's length so you don't actually ever sin against them. But when you get really close to anybody, you're going to sin against them in some way. Okay, God wants, God's love draws us so close to him that we sin against him. And his love doesn't care. Okay, he is deeply grieved by our sin and what that turns us into, but he's not afraid of what he'll find when he draws near. When he discovers the 2 p.m. version of us is there a lot more than we would like, that, that we are someone who has let people down, and we don't handle it well when people let us down that we're trying to do all the things perfectly and a lot of times we're dropping the ball in some way, right? That we're someone who's been hurt by others and now out of that hurt, we sometimes hurt other people around us too, okay? What makes God's love distinctive is that it's not given out to those who are worth it and it shines out all the more in us because it endures despite the fact that we have been people who are scarred by sin done to us. We have read in the ledger, read in our ledger, because of the sin that's been done to us. The more we ignore our sin, pretend it's not there, or convince ourselves it's always just someone else's fault, I actually think the less we're going to truly experience God's love, if you want a deep encounter with God, a lot of times that starts with admitting your own sin, because that's where God's love shines the brightest, and we feel it the most, is when we really don't feel like we deserve it, but we get it anyway. This is an avenue for you to experience God, to confess your sin, to repent from it, to turn to God, to grieve it, lament it, admit it is something that we're stuck in, and that we believe that Jesus has set us free from if we follow him, but that continues to affect us even now still. So as we walk through this series, I want to close here, but as we walk through this series, I hope that you're doing two things, okay? This is, this is what I would love to see us all doing examining ourselves to see where sin does still work through us, right? If we follow Jesus, we're no longer a slave to sin, all right? But sin is a pest that does not go away without a fight. It is something that still is trying to work through us. And second, as we do so, okay, as we really try to press into this heavy topic, that you would be seeking out God's love throughout it all. Because I truly believe that God's love is shines so brightly as we experience it by pressing into sin, all right? We're going to head into a time of of communion and worship here now. now. Communion is a regular practice of the church. And I think what it is is us living out the gospel every single week, reflecting on our sin where we, you know, in a sense, eat and drink God's love for us. That was shown to us in Christ whose body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf to show us his love right? Romans 5.8, Paul says that God's love is shown in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? When we take communion every week, we are reminding ourselves of God's deep love for us, and the lengths that he went to to love us still, to die on the cross for us. And in our worship, I think Zach does a really good job with this, in, in drawing out confession, uh, drawing out the hope of Jesus, uh, the blood of Christ that has been shed for us on the cross and, and our joy that can come from it. I, I think Zach does a really good job in our worship with drawing stuff of the, like this out in the songs. I want you to really meditate on that as we worship today and every week because it's it's drawing us into God's love when it does that. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll head into that time. Lord, we thank you that despite the fact that we live in a world that is broken, that is filled with sin and that we ourselves are people who have been Uh, marred by that, Lord, in all sorts of different ways that you love us still and that your love is a redeeming love that sets us free from sin, God. Help us to, even if this is a a message that we know very deeply, Lord, help us to continue to experience it in deep ways as we go deeper and deeper to know what it looks like for us to be made into the image of your Son as as we are sanctified, as we are purged from the sin that is within us, God. I pray that you'd help us to do that well, Lord. Uh, In this series and every day, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.